1: Welcome to Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nigen. Election day uh, is really getting closer. Six weeks from today uh, will be the final day to cast a ballot in the Georgia election. And uh, early voting begins in what? three weeks uh, on October 17th, I think I've got that right. Um, but we've moved into a new era in voting since 2020 ever since Donald Trump and his allies began challenging the results. Of the 2020 election. Uh, There are uh, fears out there that election integrity, that honest and accurate elections simply aren't being run in this country. There's no reason to suspect that's true, but uh, conspiracy theorists backing Donald Trump have said for a long time now that there's no reason to trust in the results of our elections. And that, of course, is incredibly troubling. And that's where I'd like to start the show with our terrific panel today, starting with Mark Nisi, who covers uh, uh, election-related news for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution in a way that nobody else is doing. And Mark, I'm very glad you could be with us today. Thanks so much. Great. Mark, have we got you? Yeah, okay, good. Great to have you. Great. Yep, we got you. State Representative Mary Margaret Oliver is back with us. Mary Margaret, it's always a pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks for being here. How are you?
0: I'm doing great. Thank you. Good morning.
1: Good morning. Leo Smith, Republican political consultant and uh, the uh, principal partner. Or is your title CEO or uh, or president of Engaged Futures, your government affairs uh, uh, company, Leo?
2: That would be both, Bill.
1: <laughs> oh, both. okay. <laughs> uh, Leo, we're you're you're obviously going to talk about all the issues today, but one of the things in terms of election integrity is a new project that you're working on with the Carter Center, the Georgia Democracy Resilience Network. In just a little while, we'll get to what that is all about. Meanwhile, let me introduce Chuck Cook, our final panelist today. Chuck Cook is one of the country's uh, uh, top immigration attorneys. He works both in the corporate sphere, uh, advising corporate clients on how they can deal with um, immigration laws and recruit people to come and work for them, but also does an enormous amount of work in the nonprofit sector uh, working with uh, refugees and people applying for status. Chuck, we've got a lot to talk about in terms of immigration today with Ron DeSantis's recent stunt. So thanks for being here.
3: It's never quiet when it's election time when it comes to immigration.
1: <laughs> <laughs> no. It's a, and by the way, a little later in the show... Uh, As if you thought that there was any such thing as a political free event anymore in this country, forget about it. Even the Braves' visit yesterday to the White House turned into a political hot potato, and we will talk about that a little later in the show. But, uh, Mark Meese, let's start with the whole question about election integrity and what's being done to assure voters that their votes will count accurately and honestly, and, and I think the first place to start is looking at the secretary of state's decision to replace all the voting machinery in Coffee County, where we know Trump allies led by attorney Sidney Powell went in, uh, got into secure locations in the election office and downloaded information off of the machines there. There's now a criminal probe of what happened down there. As a starting point for that, would, would you mind explaining, because I think our listeners aren't sure, because I've gotten a lot of notes. When we talk about sensitive data being taken off those machines, what does that mean exactly?
4: So what that means is that you know the, uh, most of our elections are public and transparent. You can see how ballots are counted, ballot images you can see, but some things are off limits like the election management server, which contains the tabulation information and is the main computer that programs the other computers or the voter registration tablets, those iPad looking things that you check in. To, before you vote those are called poll pads or memory cards that store votes so the risk there are basically two risks of accessing that that equipment that's supposed to be kept secure one is if you copy the software from that that makes it easier to create malware or hacks that could potentially be used to manipulate elections the other risk is that if you access that equipment, you could put something onto it. You could put a malware or hacks onto it if you have direct access to that equipment. so that's why it's supposed to be kept in a secure room, accessible only to certain people, usually only the election supervisor and maybe um, her very close designees. Um, but in this case, outsiders were let in
1: so Mark, um, just to remind people. What happened was Trump allies, including uh, uh, one of the fake electors in Georgia, went into the election machinery there. Trump won uh, Coffey County by an overwhelming margin. So the reasoning for going there is, I'm not quite sure I, I'm clear on. You might be able to help with that. But, but essentially, they were looking for uh, some evidence that there was a fraud in the way in which machinery was manipulated, um, something to that effect, right?
4: Sure. So I think the reason this happened in Coffee County is it had a confluence of both welcoming local officials who were willing to have outsiders come in and review it, and also they did have some counting problems initially. Initially, after the November 2020 election, they locally they said they couldn't reconcile um, their votes. They were off by about 50. The Secretary of State's office came down and said, "No, it does add up. The numbers are right. What are you worried about? Everything reconciles and the numbers match." But the local officials did not trust their own equipment, and so they were sympathetic to these efforts to come in and inspect the equipment and make copies of the election data, which is not allowed. You are not allowed to access these central election computers and the software and hardware of the election machinery unless you are a senior election worker in your county. It's supposed to be kept secure, and that is not what happened here.
1: Mary Margaret, uh, Brad Raffensberger uh, uh, said that they were pl- replacing were the machinery essentially out of an abundance of caution. His office claims that there was no way in which what happened down there could lead to a, uh, a hack or could uh, introduce malware into the system. That's arguable, of course. But here's the quote that uh, he gave to Mark. To allay the, fe- allay the fears being stoked by perennial election deniers and conspiracy theorists, we're replacing Coffee County's election machines. Replacing the equipment puts an end to any argument if the results in Coffee County and anywhere else in Georgia, for that matter, will not accurately reflect the will of Georgia voters. Mary Margaret?
0: Well, he's trying to look like he's doing something after he was very, very slow walking uh, to investigate something that was pretty serious on the surface and substantively. The first question I've got for, and I'm sure somebody in Georgia can explain this to me, how does Sidney Powell still have a license to practice law? But once that question is asked by somebody, uh, we had a real breach of what the industry of election machineries refer to as their intellectual property. And that is very much protected in a wide variety of ways. Their contracts that they issue and the way that their machines are managed. And what the person did down there in Coffee County was to give complete access and a complete complete breach of the intellectual property of the machinery. We have um, a, a slow walking, I think a slow walking investigation down there that is going to be illustrative of the danger that we face when we have a partisan, purely partisan person in an election official capacity. I think that's a very serious breach. In DeKalb County, by contrast, we had a, not as significant a breach, but a set of mistakes, computer mistakes, that were acknowledged as mistakes that created a a change of thousands of votes uh, in a county commission race. And I don't believe that has been adequately investigated either. So there are issues, and there are issues that are small or big. You can decide in your own view, but they feed the paranoia, they feed the messaging, they feed the Donald Trump insurrectionist conspiracies that the election was stolen. And that's the real difficulty, the real problem of our current set of discussions.
1: Leo, I, I don't think we should uh, let go of the fact that this has been a slow process to start up. Now, all the election officials in Coffee County have been replaced. So they got a brand new team down there. But um, there was no investigation of this, what had happened in Coffee County, until two things happened. One, a group of individuals filed lawsuit uh, uh, to bring this to light, to expose what had happened, and then... Uh, Reporters specifically at the AJC, including Mark Nisi, began reporting on it. And it was only then uh, that uh, these investigations uh, began with the potential for there to be uh, criminal charges filed.
2: No, I I think it's very important that we build trust. We build trust in our processes and we make sure that there's responsible oversight. The Secretary of State's office in Georgia has oversight over, uh, elections, uh, but mostly an authority that is mitigated, of course, um, by the general assembly. And then because we believe so much in local control down at the county level, including the district attorney of Co- Coffee County, that's where the main responsibility is going to lie in dealing with, um, these issues. But these are big questions about rule of law as, as, um, Mary Margaret Oliver just pointed out whether it's, um, you know, Sidney Powell or a local um, election person creating weaknesses in our system, decreasing our trust, um, the rule of law should apply here where everybody is accountable to the same laws regardless of their status or their position. And even more so um, when they have uh,
3: uh, uh, positions to support our uh, democratic republic. Chuck? It, it seems to me strange that nobody's been arrested yet over this. Um, I mean, it just seems really strange. There's video evidence that's right there. Are you breaking the law? Where's the county attorney? I mean, the other thing that's important to remember is why is there distrust in the system? There's still literally no evidence to suggest anything happened. This is just made up, and so for a made-up reason, people are breaking the law. Well, I think the best lesson to learn would be arrest those people. Uh, put them in jail, and then next time you have a problem, if you have evidence, bring it forward to the right authorities. That's how this should work. Uh, It's it's just strange it hasn't worked that way so far.
1: Mark, there are a couple tracks here. One, it would be interesting to hear your take on what Chuck's asking. Where are we going to see action on the people who clearly, as the video that was released shows, were violating, uh, uh, appeared, appeared to be violating the law? Um, but the other is, where does the legislature come in and all this? I, I think I'm correct. that SB 202 gave the legislature uh, the power to uh, 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 take action in county election uh, 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 boards where they see problems. They've looked at Fulton County, the Democratic stronghold, but uh, Democrats complain that they haven't even begun the idea of looking at Coffee County as well. So please address all that if you don't mind. <laughs> You're muted, Mark. Mark, we don't hear you. You are you muted? Uh, we've lost, we've lost Mark for a moment, but but I know Chase will get him back. Mary Margaret, why don't you jump in on those questions?
0: Well, this is it the state election board meeting tomorrow? And aren't they going to yes. take some action? I believe I heard Ed Lindsay say that yesterday. I think that yes. they obviously have a, a, a legal authority to do so. <clears throat> obligation to do so but it is it is very much slow walking it is slow walking and it's it's very distressing and the the mentality of com, trying to convince and i believe georgia is a 50-50 state 50% of georgians are subject to a republican message that the election was stolen there's still a significantly high percentage who really believe that Biden is not properly elected as president of the United States. And so that continuing message that keeps coming forward is creating a, a pollution, in our opportunity to have faith in our election integrity.
1: Um, Chase, do we have Mark back at this point? Not yet. Um, Chuck, Edward Lindsay was on uh, the show yesterday, as Mary Margaret just mentioned. He is a member of the state election board. And he did say that tomorrow, uh, the board is going to look at Coffee County, but they're also going to look at what actions they can take to help assure voters that their votes will be counted accurately and correctly. And, and I sort of, I didn't challenge him directly on that because I believe his intentions are perfectly reasonable and, and important. But the fact of the matter is there's almost nothing that, uh, that anyone can do right now uh, to dissuade those people who have believed the Trump lie for two years that their vote's going to be counted correctly.
3: I, I think the only thing that would convince those people is if Donald Trump came out and said, you know what, I was wrong. Everything was good. Fine. Let's move <laughs> forward. That is literally not going to happen. Uh, if, if major media that supports Trump would say the same thing, maybe that would have an influence. Uh, but Mary Margaret's right. There is half the people that, you know, I, I don't have to believe that, but at least a third of the people believe that. Uh, and um, it is a message that I, I'm not sure it's overcomable at this point. Uh, and, you know, I don't know what people do when their candidate wins, but they don't trust the election. Does that mean they don't trust that election? I, so the, the whole logic kind of escapes me at this point. Leo? No, I mean, it's, it's certainly
2: Georgia is a peach state. We are becoming almost like Missouri, show-me state, and that's what we have to do. We have to show folks through good administration, through aspirational norm setting, that, look, this is the normalcy to how our government should work, how civic and political engagement, how voting and elections should work, here are our processes that we have. And we, working with the Carter Center, you mentioned that, that I'm doing some work there, cross-partisan with the Carter Center on this Democracy Resilience Network. And that's exactly it. We want to make sure that the messaging out there that's about the negatives, don't overweigh the good stuff that's happening, the good poll workers, the good processes, the ones that we know are accountable, and that we can do this in a way that people can feel that they have a secure and accessible voting practice available to them. We know that we can do that in Georgia at CandidatePrinciples.org. We have candidates signing on saying we are committed to that, setting that as a standard. We have to make sure that signal is bigger than the noise.
1: Mary Margaret, um, I, I want to just talk about the, the transparency of the lie in a, in a, in, in a way uh, for a moment. Don Bolduc, who was an extreme right-wing candidate for the U.S. Senate in New Hampshire, who was running for the Republican nomination, ran as an election denier. He was in Washington on January 6th. He said over and over again, the election was stolen. Donald Trump should have been reelected president, should have held office. And yet, once he won the Republican nomination, Bolduc suddenly uh, had a lightning bolt of, of reasoning. He announced that he had done extensive study now of the 2020 election and realized that in doing that study, in fact, the election was not stolen. Obviously, moving to the middle in hopes of winning over some votes from the other side. But it strikes me that what's most important about that is that many of the election deniers don't believe this themselves.
0: <laughs> I'm re- uh, really ask my colleagues, do you believe that? I think that, that kind of, I consider that kind of a rude question to say, surely you don't believe that. So I don't, <laughs> I don't, engage with colleagues. I think they're really, uh, it's its for show, it's for the base, the base, the base. I was, you know, Jim Galloway is my favorite because of his history, his history of elections. One of the books that's most important that I tell people who come into Georgia is Turning Point by Jimmy Carter, the election, his first election to the state senate, and down in America so after Baker v. Carr, where the equipment probate judge, you know, hid the ballots and and then presented them in alphabetical order. I mean, the the ridiculousness of that kind of direct criminality, voting manipulation, is part of our history not to mention the disenfranchisement of, you know, a third of our population uh, of African-American voters. So, I mean, it is, have a history. And now Donald Trump, in a totally self-serving, intellectually dishonest, performance reality TV star performance mentality, has convinced a significant percentage of our population that election is stolen. It It comes out of what I think is people... Not us in the political bubble, not us that read all this Mark D.C. details every day. It comes out of the folks that people are generally going to want to go vote, but they don't live this every day. But they're told decade after decade, and there's a lot of evidence that they can be told this, the politicians are bad, that they're only self-serving. They never do anything for you. They're only acting for themselves. And that is Fed into that elections are dishonest. I, Donald Trump, he says, is the only honest person around. And the fact that people actually believe that, some people actually believe it, and other people use it as purely political opportunism, is is really, really a bad, bad uh, scene for those of us in the middle of the real political world. All
1: right. This is an opportunity, Leo, for you to give us a couple of, of uh, comments about the project which the Carter Center has launched, the Georgia Democracy Resilience Network. What a mouthful of a name that is. Uh, but Leo, you're one of the leaders of that effort. It's a bipartisan effort. Uh, you're the Republican uh, that is uh, uh, wh- who is one of the leaders of the effort. The other, is Rashad Ritchie, who is a well-known a uh, media personality, um, and uh, and uh, on the other side of the aisle from you, uh, just very, if you will, give us a couple of sentences or so about what precisely does the Carter Center, which has been monitoring elections uh, around the globe for many many years, uh, what exactly is this new network uh, hoping to accomplish?
2: So one of the things that we know we need is we need aspirational oversight and people to give a a fair universal standard about what kind of democratic republic we want. The Carter Center and its expertise working on democracy and disruptive governments across the world is now bringing that expertise home, knowing that they need to have cross-partisan partners. And that's why we have this cross-partisan effort of influencers and leaders, government officials, as well as grassroots activists working together to create this democracy resilience network, where we'll be assuring honest um, uh, sharing of information, civility, and robust engagement at the same time, accessible, um, uh, you know, voting sites, and and making an environment where our workers at the polls can actually work safely, and that includes also increasing. Um, you know, trust in our outcomes. And so if we do that and we message enough and we show that there are people who believe this, that that small minority that Mary Margaret Oliver is speaking of, that Donald Trump has incited into disbelieving in our, in our system in America, and that that becomes exactly that, the minority, and that the majority has a larger voice. And so we need to present those voices, and that's what this network is about. We're now meeting regularly on Wednesdays at 7 o'clock with Republicans, Libertarians, Independents, everybody on board to make sure that we can build this together.
1: Uh, we mentioned uh, on the show that you, you and I were down at Saint Simon's Island uh, a week or so ago. We were invited to go down there to uh, talk at uh, Christ Church, big Episcopalian congregation down there, about just this subject. There, that that congregation is very concerned about how we get back to trusting in each other and in our elections, and, um, and, and you, people like the pastor of that church, Tom Purdy, are just the sort of people you're looking for to become part of this network that will help advance the message that we can trust in our electoral process, right?
2: Absolutely, and thank you, Bill, for lending yourself to that effort and inviting me to come down with you to St. Simons to do that because the faith community is, is, is you know there's some complicity there that this, the, the faith in the public square has to be asserted um, and people like Father Tom um, are doing that. Other clergy are doing that. We've had meetings with clergy and uh, Rabbi uh, Peter Berg sent representatives to a meeting yeah. I had last at, last week at uh, Emory University. So this is something that the world wants America to assert that our faith has not lost its flavor and that we're going to make sure that the public square is impacted.
1: Mark Nisi, before I get to a break, thank goodness we've figured out the problem and you're back with us. I don't want to leave this segment having talked so cynically, I guess, about uh, people's faith in the system without uh, pointing out something that you've reported on. And that is in the most recent AJC poll. The reality is that a majority of people who responded to the pollsters said they do believe that the election will be run fairly and accurately, right?
4: That's right. And we do see confidence in elections when the AJC has asked that question in polls since 2020 has steadily. Increased Now, it's not really high. It's 67% of likely voters said they're very confident or somewhat confident. But that's way up from 56% in January and 60% in April. So it does seem that more voters are gaining confidence in elections and do have some faith that their elections will be carried out correctly. I think what you'll find when you talk to individual voters, they trust their own counties. They trust their own representatives. And their own election officials. It's just those election officials over there that they don't trust in those other counties. Um, so, but it is good to see that people are learning and understanding how elections work a little bit better, and hopefully our election processes are also improving.
1: Uh, before I get to the break, though, uh, really quickly, Mark, I, I didn't, I don't have the crosstabs on that question in front of me. Is it uh, more true of Democrats and Republicans who have faith in the system?
4: Generally speaking, um, it's conservatives that are more skeptical than liberals of the voting system. And I think that's uh, residual from the 2020 election when President Donald Trump cast so much doubt on the accuracy and integrity of elections processes.
1: All right, we got to get to the first break of the show. Uh, When we come back, um, we're going to talk a little bit about the uh, headlines, the immigration headlines that have uh, really once again uh, popped up in our news. We'll do that with our panel and talk about many more issues after these messages.
3: Thanks for listening to Political Rewind.
1: The AJC's Mark Nisi, uh, State Representative Mary Margaret Oliver, uh, Chuck Cook, and Leo Smith join us for today's show. Chuck, um, I introduced you as one of the country's top immigration lawyers, and that is certainly the case. Uh, Let's talk a little bit about this. I I don't think there's another word to use, but stunt that Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida, pulled when he uh, uh, arranged a flight to send... Um, People seeking asylum in Texas, they were rounded up in Texas and shipped off to Martha's Vineyard, which, of course, is a a wealthy vacation retreat for the kind of liberals that Ron DeSantis would love to irritate more than anything else. And, of course, this has gotten an enormous amount of attention. Just give us your initial take. On what well, DeSantis did, but then let's dig in a little more to this whole issue of asylum seeking and how we're dealing with it.
3: I don't think anybody was more upset about that than than Governor Abbott, because he didn't think about it first. Um, yeah. uh, you know, think, think about this. He there was, as Ron DeSantis admitted in a press conference later, we don't really have a problem with those people coming here because we don't we don't see the increase, so we had to go find them somewhere else. Um, you know, obviously what he's trying to do is point out that the Biden administration has a lot of people coming to the border seeking asylum. Uh, what he failed to point out was the Biden administration is following the law, the, the federal law that Governor DeSantis himself voted on uh, you know, when he was in Congress that said that anybody who enters the United States, whether illegally or at the port of entry, who claims to be afraid to go back home, is entitled to a hearing in front of an immigration judge. Punto. End of story. That, that's it. That's the federal law. Now, during, during COVID, the, the Trump administration and the Biden administration have both used something called Title 42. It's a provision in federal, the federal code that allows people to be turned around at the border uh, for health reasons. Uh, and uh, that's basically almost basically still in place, and they've been turning around lots of people who just end up coming back the next week or the next day uh, over and over again. But the, what we're seeing at the border, and, and, and as a result of the stunt by, by Governor DeSantis, is a crisis in our southern neighbors um, and, and, and in, people abroad, in countries, countries abroad that people are realizing, well, the only safe place for me to go is the United States. This is not the illegal immigration of the 90s and 2000s, which was predominantly Mexican, predominantly job related. Uh, this is people literally fleeing what are essentially communist dictatorships. Um, and they're coming to the country that says, freedom, justice, mercy, liberty, you know open our golden doors, uh, we oppose communism. It, it's not a surprise that this is happening. Uh, what we're seeing though is a volume that neither the Trump administration nor the Biden administration, is prepared to handle, uh, mostly because Congress refuses to fund the problem and refuses to modify our laws in coherent ways that might make it easier for an administration who follows the law to deal with.
1: Mary Margaret, I think one of the things that Chuck, a lot of what he said is, is uh, worth unpacking here, but one of the things he points out is that in the 90s and 2000s, uh, the people who crossed the border uh, who were undocumented. Uh, that's what they did. They just came across the border and tried to integrate themselves into uh, whatever community they could, so they could get work, uh, whatever. But then we that became about asylum seekers, as Chuck points out, which triggered an entire legal process that our country is simply not equipped to handle. And one of the reasons we're not equipped to handle it is there's no way to reach bipartisan agreement on how it should unfold, how it should be funded, and the like. Yes?
0: When the uh, folks came in the earlier decades, they were aided and abetted by businesses who need those employees. It was mutually beneficial for the worker and the employer to uh, have a quote-unquote open border to, to pick the onions and the apples and to do the work that needed to be done. And as as you mentioned, this transitioned into a more legal, narrow analysis of asylum. It's an example of a lack of political will that is very significantly and demonstrative of Congress on many days of the week. And the lack of political will is causing an enormous amount of human energy, energy, human injury, Enormous amount of human trafficking and enormous amount of corrupt and uh, cartel activity. It's really very tragic, and I point the finger directly at Congress. I want to say one more thing about the stunt, and there is no other word other than stunt. I'm used to political stunts. Frequently, they are successful when they have a certain amount of humor or a certain amount of theater that kind of engages people. The Republican stunts right now, evidenced most clearly by DeSantis' stunts, is based on meanness. It's just mean what he did, mocking these folks who have traveled out of these communist dictators, mocking them, and then mocking the liberal, quote-unquote, liberals. Uh, There was a state senator who represents Martha's Vineyard who said that the reason that there was an outpouring of help for these folks that were trafficked by DeSantis was that the population growth of Martha's Vineyards has been teachers and fire fighters and police and a true middle-class population that's indicative of Massachusetts and not the wealthy uh, folks that own properties there on the beach. A Very interesting kind of discussion of the way he described Martha's Vineyard that I thought was very much in tune. The meanness of pointing your finger at tragic asylum seekers seems to be benefiting somebody like DeSantis, but only with, this is my question, this is my inquiry, who in the base who goes claims to go to the church, claims to go to the Baptist church, claims to look at the Bible, thinks that that was anything other than opportunistic meanness to benefit DeSantis?
1: Uh, Leo, I want to get you and Mark in here. Let me just uh, say that um, we do have to assign, and Chuck Cook and Mary Margaret, you too, really pointed out, this is a problem on both sides of the aisle. I mean, Democrats have not been willing to work on the problem. Republicans haven't been working to take it on. Mary Margaret, you say it's a lack of political will. And I think it is important to point that out. Even, Leo, as I say, one of the most disturbing articles that I have read in the New York Times this week was a piece on what the headline calls the megastate GOP rivalry between Greg Abbott and Ron DeSantis, both of them maneuvering for national attention, both of them potential presidential, certainly DeSantis, a presidential contender in 2024. The way in which they have both been using this issue of asylum seekers, Abbott shipping them off to New York, to Washington, to Chicago— Now DeSantis tries to get in the game with this Martha's Vineyard stunt, and it has nothing to do with working on the policy issue.
2: You know, as a political consultant, uh, Bill, this is why I say that we should be having a discussion about a political advertising syntax, because (laughs) the fact is, is that campaigning and political rhetoric has become a national hazard, and we need to figure out how we can mitigate that without decreasing First Amendment rights. And so so citizens need to have honest information available to them. They need to know the integrity of conservatism as well as progressive liberalism. And when candidates decide to do something only to get attention and not speak the truth about what their base truly believes, because the Republicans conservatives certainly believe in asylum and certainly believe that part of this idea of American exceptionalism is the fact that we do bring in those people seeking asylum. That is Essential
1: to who we are Mark, one of the real issues here, what's interesting is a the backlash. There are many business Chuck, I'm sure you can comment on this as well, but mark there there are many business leaders who have said, we need these people. we want we we cannot fill the thousands of jobs, maybe maybe hundreds of thousands across the country that are going unfilled. We need to be able to take advantage of immigrants to uh, uh, help our businesses uh, survive and thrive. Mark? That's right. You do hear that from,
4: yes, you hear that perfectly. They need a workforce and they want more um, people to participate. But it just seems like that when you get to Congress, there's not a real, any room for compromise or negotiation. It doesn't seem like there's any political solution in sight. And, you know, we've been talking about this for a long time. The last time in my memory that it seems like things came close to reaching a resolution was in the weeks before September 11th. And then that all went down the drain um, when we tightened our borders and increased security, um, which I understand, but we've never gotten back to that point.
3: You know, I think it's easy to talk about both sideism here, but I have to point something out. Uh, The Democratic House has actually passed a very detailed, very thorough immigration proposal, HB 6, that would address this and many other immigration issues. And it has been sitting in the Senate for over a year Mm -hmm. because there are not 10 Republican senators to, to even negotiate the bill. I mean, this is... so there is stuff put forward mm-hmm. and the bigger concern with with governor DeSantis is okay great you had this stunt what's your solution what is your solution i mean the the largest the fastest growing immigrant population in florida are venezuelans and he just hauled 50 venezuelans um really by deceit to massachusetts what's a state in which by the way he went to law school i mean he fully knows what massachusetts is um so the idea here is that there is some sort of what aboutism. is there are Republicans with solutions, but there are not 10 of them sitting in the United States Senate. And, when both, and both sides, though, do use this as politics. And we will never fix this problem. I've been doing this for 35 years. When I first started was 1990, which is not last time that we fixed our immigration laws. It's been 32 years. We didn't, most of us didn't have cell phones at the time. We certainly didn't have a lot of personal computers. We certainly had a very different economy. And yet, immigration can serve as this massive benefit to the country. I mean, it is a massive – nobody's banging out of doors flooding into North Korea, for goodness sakes. And Marsha Blackburn, just to close on this little point, yesterday tweeted, 60% of the small businesses in Tennessee don't have enough employees. Uh, you know, Oddly enough, I have, I have a solution for that. Um, It's called immigration. Um, (laughs) These asylum seekers, they can get a work permit. Um, Okay, problem solved. It just doesn't make any sense other than we have to use this as a weapon in politics that we don't use this to fix the problem. This is a huge benefit to us. It's just huge.
1: Mary Margaret, let's point and remind people uh, that uh, uh, Marsh Blackburn is the Republican senator from uh, Tennessee. And and by the way, I think another thing the New York Times piece points out that's important here is that people like DeSantis and Abbott and Republicans who have been in the same, uh, have the same positions they do, they've painted themselves into this corner when where it appears that no asylum will be acceptable uh, as, as we move forward, despite the fact that the laws right now allow for that process but there's going to be no political will to allow that to move forward.
0: I was at Druid Hills High School uh, based on issues there last week again, and um, it, it's a it's a very international school. It, it, as you may know, it's a very diverse international school. Of course, we're looking at the international students who will be valedictorians. And... Uh, if you look at the names of the County high school graduates and House Victorians um, are not Jones and Smith and Johnson, they're they're different kind of names. And uh, the point of that is the Georgia General Assembly has the same kind of struggle. But the the to call it just whataboutism is is really not accurate. We have a Republican from up in Dalton who's really tried to push forward. Uh, something for the dreamers. I don't think anybody disagrees that the dreamer who's a valedictorian of Druid Hills High School or Dalton High School should be able to go to the University of Georgia and to Georgia Tech. I just don't think anybody is against that. And yet we are unable to pass it in a bipartisan way because of the divide within the Republican crowd. The Democrats and the Republicans, some Republicans really want to fix that small issue about who, what valedictorian can you know, go to what college in Georgia, Georgia and Georgia Tech being preeminent public institutions across the country. And again, it's just a failure of political will, but it's not all about is it. It's what division within the Republican Party.
1: Uh, Thank you for a really, really meaningful conversation about that. We got to get to our final break of the show. We're going to come back with more on Political Rewind. Mark Nissey, I was reading the, the Jolt a little while before we went on the air today, and one of the items in there that I think is worth uh, talking about for a couple minutes is your colleague Shannon McCaffrey, who has been out following Herschel Walker as he does his uh, Unite Georgia. I think that's the name of his uh, tour of the state. You know, he made a comment about Medicaid, and what I thought was particularly interesting about it is that we've said on the show a couple times in the last oh four or five shows that the Walker campaign has been a lot more disciplined since they brought in a new campaign team. They've tried to get Herschel Walker to be more focused, to not make outlandish comments as he has in the past. And yet, uh, yesterday, according to McCaffrey, he was asked about expanding Medicaid. He said he doesn't believe it should happen, which is in line with other Republican thinking on that, certainly Governor Kemp. But he's also said, he also said, right now, Medicaid has not been good Now, I don't think even Governor Kemp would try to go out on the campaign trail and say Medicaid has not been good. Walker said it in the context of it's bankrupting us. It's not bankrupting us. And it has been good. And I think most Republican candidates would agree it has, uh, Mark. Most Republican
4: candidates might agree. I don't know if they would talk about it, though. You know, Medicaid is not a popular (laughs) subject among many Republican uh, candidates, although uh, Medicare is. You know, health plan for seniors is much more popular among politicians than Medicaid, which provides health for people generally with lower incomes. So I'm not sure um, what Herschel Walker's detailed policy position would be <laughs> on whether Medicaid <laughs> should exist or not, um, but certainly it does provide a crucial safety net to um, many, many Americans who otherwise wouldn't have health care. Leo?
2: You know, I went down to uh, Herschel's event on Auburn Avenue yesterday. Um, to listen in on him uh, as he talked to Black business owners there. And he spoke a little bit about supporting an environment where people could build wealth. And I think that when Herschel talks about a policy issue like this, oftentimes he conflates it to generalities, and that is the idea that health care is expensive and it can create bankruptcy, da-da-da-da-da. He's not sometimes speaking to specifics. But I have to say that at that event, He was very specific about economics and job creation, et cetera. He didn't talk about Medicaid at all. But I think he does sometimes kind of get lost in the emotional context of something. Healthcare is very expensive and it creates a loss of income.
1: Mary Margaret, uh, there are a lot of reasons to look at some of Herschel Walker's statements and and be kind of stunned by them. But the fact of the matter is, he's running neck and neck with Raphael Warnock, despite the fact that Warnock's campaign and the PACs who support him have poured millions of dollars in trying to uh, undermine Walker as a legitimate candidate.
0: I'd like to ask Herschel Walker if he knows the difference between Medicaid and Medicare and see how he answers <laughs> that question. Um, <laughs> The the reality is that Herschel Walker is a motivational – in addition to being a very gifted athlete, he's a motivational speaker. He's an attractive, motivational speaker. That does not make him a U.S. senator. Uh, Raphael uh, Ornock has been a, a, a fabulous example of combining faith with public service with traditional politics. It's really interesting and how – how he has become a substantive leader in the Senate, a relationship-based senator leader, and person who comes across uniquely and differently. Herschel Walker is a motivational speaker and a gifted athlete. And it is very, very sad to me that those two gentlemen are being compared equally in the 50-50 division of our state. I do believe that Georgia voters will choose Warnock. I do believe that. I think that Herschel Walker, maybe not knowing the difference between Medicare and Medicaid, or certainly not understanding much about how it serves two million people, almost all children—not, I mean, a very significant percentage of children. Those facts are more likely to be known by Georgia voters as this campaign goes forward.
1: Um, all right. Uh... I want to, for the last couple minutes of the show, turn to what happened at the White House yesterday. Uh, Chuck Cook, I'll start with you on this one. Good. The Atlanta Braves invited the White House to meet with President Biden as teams have been in perpetuity invited to the White House to celebrate their uh, championships, to get their picture made with the president, give the president an opportunity to do a little uh, glad handing with them. It's politically advantageous, especially to the cities where the teams are coming from. Yesterday, everything went great until in the uh, afternoon press briefing, a reporter (laughs) asked uh, Biden's press secretary, uh, what do you think about the name, the Atlanta Braves? And uh, she responded, "Uh, they probably ought to reconsider the brand. Uh, That led to some real concerns (laughs) among Republicans uh, who said, uh, stop being so woke, essentially. Chuck?
3: Well, I I would first point out that there was a great picture from that event yesterday of the presentation by the team to President Biden of his shirt, and he—I'd say—he looked genuinely surprised. Oh, you're giving me a a team jersey? That's kind of (laughs) that. It's like he didn't know. It's like cool, yeah, you get one of these. It's kind of cool. Um, the press briefing itself, so obviously the, the president didn't talk about the name. It just, you know, this came up in the press conference. It wasn't even brought up by the press secretary, brought up by the question from a reporter. But what she said in response was not they should rethink the name. What she said was that people indigenous people in the United States, their concerns need to be taken into account. It was I honestly I thought it was a pretty generic response to what what could have been, I'd be like, change the name, you people. What's wrong with you? Um, so I, I, I think this is an issue only in, only in Georgia today, and then the rest of America doesn't even care about what happened. As long as we don't become the Atlanta commanders, okay, I'm fine.
1: Um, <laughs> well, wait, wait. I, but, but Mark, I think it's absolutely true. This is not a national story. But in a very, very tight Senate and governor's race, Um, I do think that things like this have an impact. Uh, You know, uh, Brian Kemp responded to it by saying, keep chopping. Uh, Herschel Walker said it was outrageous. You know, frankly, if I were Raphael Warnock and Stacey Abrams, after that uh, press briefing, I would be smacking my head saying, oh, my gosh, why did she have to say what What? she did? (laughs) Mark?
4: Right. Well, I'm a big Braves fan. Um, and you know, um, You know, we hear keep chopping that came from UGA, keep chopping wood. But now it's being applied to the Braves and the Tomahawk chop, which, you know, leave aside all the discussion of whether it's offensive or not. It's pretty tired. You know, we've been doing the chop in Atlanta for what, since 1991 or so with that great season. And now it just seems to me, personal opinion, it's it's worn out. So um, I don't know about the name of the team, but the chop, I'm. I'm pretty much done with that. But that's just my opinion as a lifelong Braves fan. Go Braves. Hope they right. beat the Mets.
1: Hoorah. Mary Margaret and Leo. But but here's the thing beyond the beyond the what seems to be the silliness of this, Mary Margaret. Um, it reminds us that having substantive conversations. I mean, maybe there isn't a substantive conversation to have about the use of indigenous. Uh, 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 symbols of, of names for sports teams is a reasonable and worthwhile conversation. But that's not what happens in the aftermath of something like this. It becomes purely partisan uh, 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 rhetoric.
0: Finger pointing, partisan finger pointing. Uh, I don't think uh, Biden's press secretary is a sports fan. I don't think she <laughs> understands the emotions <laughs> of Go uh, no Dogs or Hank Aaron. I mean, <laughs> Grew up with Hank Hank Aaron and the guy from Denver that owns the Braves and moves them to Cobb. I'm less of a fan now, Mark, than I was uh, <laughs> as an Atlanta native. The um, sensitivity of certain issues is real, and yet the politicalization of this uh, event is is a, another sad commentary.
1: All right, I've got to stop the conversation right here, and I'm sorry I do, uh, but uh, Mary Margaret Oliver, Leo Smith, Mark Nisi, Chuck Cook, what a terrific conversation, and I'm really grateful uh, to all of you for being with us on the show. By the way, tomorrow's another Political Rewind newsletter day. If you're not a subscriber, go to gpb.org newsletters. You can get it delivered into your inbox every Wednesday afternoon. That's it. Out of time, back with a brand new show tomorrow. In the meantime, I'm Bill Niga. Take care. Please stay healthy. Bye-bye, everybody.